Welcome to Island Baptist Church's Bible study in the parables of Luke, Lesson 5. We're going to be in Luke 10. And we're going to be looking at the parable, maybe one of the best known parables in the world, which is the parable of the good, quote, good Samaritan. All these parables have titles given to them much later, and a sort of a formation of uh, yeah, and even, even the title I would have some disagreement with just because, as we're going to see, it, it betrays a sort of a, a lower-level interpretation. Uh, parables are familiar to people, but not always correctly understood. And part and parcel, because we pull them out, parable, Good Samaritan is one of the worst ones. We, just, we excise it from the text, and we take it from, from there, and you, it, it was not told, it was not, it's not in a vacuum. We interpret it in a vacuum, but it was not told in a vacuum. And so our conclusions come up to be, in some cases, wildly different than the intent of the text. And then also because we are not in the culture. And both of those cases uh, render us something, with something less than, than what God intended. And not to say that we're 100% incorrect. Some people are. Typical church is not. Typical church members are not. And what you're taught in the church, and don't get me wrong, is not completely wrong about this parable per se, but I'd be willing to bet that most of you, if not all of you, have missed the main point of this. You've just not been taught it. You've just not been taught it. And, and it is because you don't understand the culture, but mainly because it's been excised from the text, and the text and the, and the context of it is so important. And again, like I said, case in point, the parable's mis, misunderstood is, is this Samaritan uh, the, st the story of the Good Samaritan, and we should expect that to a certain degree as a result of these parables that they not be interpreted correctly because of their original intent. Look, look, have you forgotten what Jesus said about the parables, what the scripture says? Matthew 10, 13 through 16. This is why, Jesus speaking, I speak to them in parables. Why? So that though seeing, they not see. These are intended to be anomalies so that we come up with an anomalous conclusion. Yeah. Uh, unless you're following strict guidelines, you're going to do that. Because they were intended to be anomalous. They're, they are true, but they are not face value true. And unless you're real careful. Uh, though hearing they do not hear or, and understand, it was a judgment, right, against the Jewish people because they had... They had all the words, they had all the prophets, and yet they were still turning their back on God. And so you know what? He was going to speak to them now in words they couldn't understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will ever hear, be hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Then all the way down to the end of that chapter, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables and did not say anything to them without using a parable. Because it was a judgment, you see. So these, these parables are true stories or or. They're accurate stories, and Jesus told them, and they do have a point, but the point is only for those who, who these things aren't true. You're under the judgment of God and unwilling to submit yourself to who he is and to his spirit, and, and to come to him and say, I know nothing, and you know everything, and you're the teacher, and I'm just the listener. If, you're not, if that's not your approach to this, then these are going to be anomalous to you, and you're going to have poor conclusions. And to a certain degree, that's part of the reason why we've come up with kind of weird, weird um, conclusions. So these things effectively are riddles unless they're explained to us by the Holy Spirit. Can you agree with that? This is not an intellectual approach. So I told you not to check your brain at the door, now I just told you to check your brain at the door, didn't I? <laughs> have a low, not check your brain, engage your brain, but have a low opinion of what your brain can accomplish. Maybe that's the best way we, we should come at it. Remember we're sheep, sheep are, are never get smart. They never do. <laughs> They're dumb, they are born dumb, they stay dumb. The only sheep to get by are the ones that learn to stick with the shepherd. So without dependence on the Holy Spirit, and hear me, an assumption that these are simple stories that can be easily understood, we come up with conclusions that are wrong. Without dependence on the Holy Spirit, and an assumption that they're easily understood. Well, there you go. An example is, like I said, this misapplication of this parable has led to anything from uh, a minor misapplication, which is your probably typical interpretation. Uh, the church defending its position on social justice issues uses this parable. Poor application. 
all the way to socialists and Marxists using this parable to defend their positions on those particular topics. Yeah, that's why this parable is so, so incredibly well known in our world, because man, they take it and just do all kinds of uh, horrible things to it, uh, which it was never intended for and not the point at all and not the place we find it in the text of the scriptures. So let's hear what the story has to say and examine these, some of these misapplications here early on and then we'll look at the rest of it. So chapter 10, and we're going to do what we normally do, which is just kind of cut it out of the text. And then we're going to go back and put it into the context a bit later. Jesus replied and said, replied to who? About what? See, that should be your question. You enter into that, but we just start with that story, you know, there in verse. A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him, went off leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest going down on that road, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side, and likewise a Levite also. And he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey, Jesus always throws, almost always throws a wow factor in his stories. This is the wow factor right here. Nobody's wowed with the priest or the Levite. They would expect them to do that. But they are wowed that the Samaritan doesn't. Who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an end and took care of him and on the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. And then, now here's Jesus' question and commentary. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And they said, the, notice they don't mention, they don't say the word Samaritan because it was a, it was, it was galling to say that name. The one who showed mercy. I won't even mention who he is. Of course, he's a Samaritan. Because he knew he was getting their goat. That's what he's doing. Nailing them. Jesus said to them, go and do the same. And, and uh, then we have the end of the parable. So let's, let's pray and ask God, now that we've read it, to help us interpret it and uh, take in the message. Heavenly Father, we are dependent completely upon your Holy Spirit. We confess that we are sheep, and uh, sheep never become smarter, really. A smart sheep is just one who knows who a shepherd is and does everything a shepherd says, Lord. And so we are, here's your sheep, and you are our shepherd, and we're asking you for direction and, and understanding. Lord, we believe that you've given us this, and, it, and thus you've given it to us for understanding, and you withheld things that, that are not for us to understand but you've given things for us to understand. And so we are open our minds, our hearts to you, Lord, and we're trusting your Holy Spirit to guide us and be the teacher today as always. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this is a very simple and attractive story, but as I said, it was not told in a vacuum. We just read it as if it were. It was told in a very special situation. And without uh, that context, we can come up with some really strange conclusions. Here's some Here's some off-the-wall conclusions. Some of you probably, maybe possibly hold these conclusions. I'm not trying to attack you. I'm just trying to correct you. So here, here's a conclusion. The Good Samaritan is about helping people who have less than we do. Nope. Nope, it's not. And, and not to say that, does not the Bible teach that? And, and, and I'm not to say that this isn't a secondary, lesser application of this story, but if we miss the first application, which, which we have if we jump to that conclusion, then we've really missed the whole story. That is a wrong conclusion. That is not the intent of this parable. Not to say, like I said, not, that, not to say that you couldn't back up a position like that from this parable, but it's really a waste of what really Jesus is trying to do here. Here's another one. The Good Samaritan is about social action and social equality. Nope. It's not. The Good Samaritan is about crossing racial barriers and about the need to improve conditions in certain areas that, and deter crime. Nope. Here's the Bernie Sanders an answer, sorry. <laughs> this is not from Bernie, but it does sound like him. The Good Samaritan is a poor example of taking care of the real needs of society 
What were the social conditions that led to these men abusing this wounded man and leaving him half dead? Was it not a predictable outcome of a deeper social illness? We need to dig out the root causes of injustice that made these men steal so that violence becomes a part of history and ceases so that good Samaritans will no longer be needed. That, you know, I, I wish that were true, but it didn't. That's a very foolish position and understanding of what people are really like. And to take that from this, but see, this is where we, this, we get crazy stuff like this. When, when we don't hold to the text. Uh, uh, mo- most of you, of course, wouldn't end up in, in that place for sure. Um, um, and, and, and again, not to say that uh, social things couldn't be supported uh, legitimately from this text, but, but un- until we come to the understanding of what the main point Jesus is trying to make here and what's really going on, we really can't branch off into secondary, tertiary conclusions. Just can't. We, oh, I shouldn't say that. We shouldn't. We want to honor what the Scripture says, what Jesus says, and the text as it was conveyed to us, by uh, Luke, through the leadership of the Holy Spirit, well then, then let's be a lot more strict with what we do. And here's the strictness of it. Here's the conclusion, the real point of it. And we're going to make this point. And uh, so just take it for what I say for a moment here. And, and uh, don't believe me, I would suggest that. Just hold on to it and let it be a little, little bit uh, contrary to what you thought. This is a salvation story, guys. That's all it is. That's all that Jesus is attempting to do. He's trying to get to the heart of a person who thinks he's saved, but isn't. That's the whole reason, and a crowd that's in the same condition. That's the whole reason he tells this story. It's not to to encourage social issues. It's not to make sure the next time they're on the way to Jericho that they keep a second eye out for uh, robbers or any other conclusions of people, strange things. So, so Jesus tells 40 or so parables in the New Testament that are almost all exclusively about salvation. Does that surprise you? Because that is the issue. Whether, whether you help somebody on the side of the road or whether we feed people who are hungry, not to say that those don't matter, but they are lesser issues than the salvation issue. They just are. Because this life, guys, no matter what we do, is going to be over. The hungry are going to stay hungry, the poor are going to stay poor, and all of us are going to die. And if all we do is feed them and clothe them, if all we do is put them in an inn and, and, and give them uh, uh, care, then we have not actually helped anyone, have we? No. We have thrown away opportunities and assets that actually could have been used for the main point that Jesus is trying to make and all the way through. Consider just the, just the parables we, we've looked at. The lost coin, what's that about? Salvation. Lost sheep. Salvation. The, lost, the two lost sons, I think is a better interpretation of that instead of prodigal son. Salvation. The rich man and Lazarus. Salvation. The banquet we saw last time, what's that about? People that thought they were saved but were not. They're not going to be at the meal. They were missing it, you see. Over and over and over again, Jesus keeps coming back, coming back, coming back to these, this central issue of are you going to heaven or are you not? Because that's the stuff that matters most. That is the main thing of the church, not social issues. In fact, everything bows to that because that is what Jesus bows everything to. And if the church is to follow him, and we should, then we're going to have to go to that issue. Salvation is a big issue because it is the big issue. It is the biggest issue. Again, who cares if we're socially active and meeting others' needs and miss heaven? What have we accomplished? Nothing. Nothing for all eternity will be known as the stupid people, the ignorant church who focused on something that ultimately was just temporary. It'll be super sad. Who cares how we feel about God forgiving the worst of sinners if we ourselves haven't ran for his forgiveness? See, that's what the Jews were. Jews believe in forgiveness of God. They just didn't think they needed it. It's for the sinners. It's not for me because I'm not a sinner. Wrong. Who cares if you think you're going to heaven, but in fact what you believe disagrees with what God says? It won't matter a bit how sincere you were about your belief system. Again, can't we agree that if what we think gets us to heaven disagrees with what God says gets us to heaven, that we ain't going? He's not making exceptions. 
He's just not. Never has, never will. So this story is part of a, listen, personal evangelism encounter in which Jesus is trying to point out to a man that he's missing heaven unless he realizes he's a sinner and needs to repent. So let's establish that, and I've said that, but let's establish that based upon the context. So now we're ready to look at it. Chapter 10, back up to verse 25. Here's the context. It's in a setting, it wasn't told in a vacuum, and it's from that setting that we need to understand and interpret the story. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Now why would you ever put Jesus to the test? Unless, of course, to begin with, you don't think that he's the Messiah. You think he's a liar, you think he's a charlatan. You're putting him to public test so that he will perjure himself in front of the whole crowd. This is this guy's intent, he has no other intent. There's no, there's no other purpose in him. He's not, this is not a legitimate question. This is an illegitimate question. He's trying to get Jesus to say something so that he can say, see, he's a false teacher. See, we should have him killed. And they did. But it was already it was a foregone conclusion for him. So you have to understand the intent of this man. He's not asking a legitimate question. He's asking a false question. He's just trying to get Jesus to say something that will get him in trouble. Notice how nice he is. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there's not a more important question than that. That is the most important question. But he's not asking this question. Because he thinks he's got that eternal life. Understand that from the beginning. He thinks he's saved. He doesn't have a question of how you go to heaven. He doesn't have an issue. He has no doubts whatsoever that he's going to be eternally with God in Abraham's bosom and all that stuff. That is not his issue at all. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a directed shot at Jesus. They're trying to get to him. They did this constantly. So, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? By the way, classic way rabbis handled each other. You ask a question, you answer with a question, they answer with a question, you answer with a question. It's hard to get to the bottom of it. It's kind of the way they did kind of like a tennis match. Hit it there, hit it back, hit it back, hit it back until somebody drops it or shoots it over the line. So what is written in the law? How does it read to you? Notice this man immediately has an answer because he's not dumb. These guys were trained um, uh, debaters. And so he's not just randomly getting up from, uh, he just didn't wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I think I'm going to go take this Jesus on today. I guarantee you he's coming from a pool of thought, of not just a couple of guys. And he's the best debater, and they've come up with a, a diatribe, and they're going to they put him out there because they know he's able to answer quickly and he's able to hold his own in front of a bunch of people. And they're going to take on a guy who Jesus has defeated him every single time. And so they've picked their best guy and they've picked one of their best arguments. So again, you have to understand what's going on here so that you can understand why Jesus says what he says. So this is a guy who thinks he's saved, thinks Jesus is a, is a, is a charlatan and is trying to prove it. That's the whole intent that's happening here. So he immediately answers, like I said, prepared answer. You shall, in a correct one, as we're going to see Jesus agrees with him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. We know these as the two greatest commandments, right? We know these. Notice Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Righteousness by? Righteousness by? By works. Absolutely. Can you be righteous by works? Yes if you're perfect. Jesus was perfect, wasn't he? Go and do likewise. But if you can't do likewise, what you're gonna do? That's the point. That's the point. So again, they're, they, they're trying to get Jesus monologuing, and he's not. He answers with a question, and then he says, you've answered correctly, go and do it. So like, oh. Let's get him, so he, he, he throws out something else so that may, maybe Jesus will start monologuing. In fact, that's what he does. That's what, the whole, that's what this is, is a monologue. It's what, it's what, the, what the scribe wanted him to do. But, um, but, um, but you don't take Jesus on, <laughs> ever. 
And we know better than that, but we've all done that in our lives, haven't we? That's not the right way, Jesus. You're not doing right. I, can't know, I don't know why you're doing this to me, God, because you're so smart, right? Wishing to justify himself, again, he went in there because he's the champion, right? Everybody else has put him up front. And trying to show that he's still good, he shoots another question. Who is my neighbor? So, and by the way, pretty good question because part of, part of their, part of their uh, and, and really hats off to this guy, I mean, he did the best he could. He's a complete failure, but he did the best he could. Um, because, because one of their big issues, as we'll see a little bit later in chapter 15, of course, the whole start of the, the lost, lost coin and the lost sheep and then the lost son, is they have a problem with him hanging out with the dregs of society, the fishermen, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the demon-possessed, the irreligious people. They have a problem with that, and so, so it's, it's, it's a great, it's a great uh, dig, if you will, because they're hoping he'll say something like that like a prostitute or something like that. See, he's a sinner. We all know that you don't hang out with these people because God wants us to be separate from these people, Jewish doctrine. And so he, was, he, was, he thought he'd cornered him. And um, yeah, nope. So, so this is the situation. These, these lawyers, this lawyer that stands up, and understand when, I say, when it says a lawyer there, a scribe, this, this man was not a lawyer in the sense of um, legal issues. He's a lawyer in the sense of God's laws, uh, not civil or criminal laws. Uh, these guys were the experts in law. The Pharisees were experts, but, but when they had questions, they would go back to these guys. These were the intelligentsia behind their false doctrines. So these were the uh, cloistered, uh, behind the mahogany desk uh, professors, if you will, of this uh, aberrant form of Judaism. That's what this guy was. And so the Pharisees have been taking Jesus on and getting shot down, so they're going to put their big guy up there. That's who he is. And so he fails miserably. So the lawyer asks the most important question, which is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's not a more important question than that. That is the question you want to answer to, to be sure. How do I get to heaven? Of course, he's not unsure of how you get there at all. It is not a real question. He's not interested in a real answer because he already has the conclusion. His conclusion, number one, that he is going to heaven and that Jesus is a false teacher. He's wrong on both issues. He thinks he knows full well. He's trying to get Jesus to perjure himself in front of the crowd. That's, only, that's all he's trying to do, and Jesus is answering back to this. Jesus' answers to his questions is a standard procedure, like I said, as experts in the law would do. You ask a question, I respond with a question. And back, it goes back and forth, back and forth. And the way you win, like I said, it's like tennis, is you get him to drop the ball or shoot over the line. And um, Jesus doesn't, he's not going to lose a game like that. So, so Jesus answers with a question, and the guy responds correctly. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 and 5, and Leviticus 19, verse 18, which are the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. These are the two greatest commandments in the Scriptures. So let's, let's stop right there for a second for you bunch of scribes and Pharisees. So are you keeping those laws? Are you keeping them? I want you to think about that answer because I'm going to hit you hard with it in a minute. Are you or are you not keeping them? Just answer that to yourself and then, then hold on, we're going to get to that. So, so what he's expecting Jesus to agree with is that this follow-up somehow is he's going to get Jesus to say how you ought to, you ought to consider Gentiles and otherwise sinners as your neighbors and then that was, he's going to use that as a slander against him and so he's hoping to get out of this by saying who's my neighbor. So, so the two greatest commandments, of course, the greatest because they are the summation of the ten. Ten Commandments. The first half of the ten is effectively summed up by love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. No, neighbor, no God before me, no idols, uh, no, name not taken in vain, uh, uh, keep the Sabbath day for it's holy. Uh, missing one there. Can't remember. Anyway. And then the second half is dealing with your neighbor, right? Uh, no adultery, no stealing, no murder, no coveting, no honoring your father and mother. These are all, uh, half, is to, half is towards God and half is towards men. And so the summation of both of them is love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Just sum them up. And they're, they're written in the scriptures that way. So, so, so this man is wanting to get into argument about the details of some application, but Jesus backs him up to the macro application. Let's go back to these two commandments. Are you keeping them? This is what he's doing. 
He's about to lay bare whether or not this man keeps these commandments and whether or not his system of religion is about these two commandments. Even though they say that they're keeping them, they are not. And, and, and the man knew the answer. But because he thought, he believed that he was keeping those laws. He could shoot right back with him with love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself because he believed his interpretation of those laws and his way of interpreting them that he was keeping them. He was not. No one is. Now I've already given you your answer. No one is nor ever has kept these laws. You haven't. Jesus his, his position on the head by saying just simply go and do it. So the man is self-righteous. He believes that he's achieving righteousness uh, for himself. Uh, he was confident that he's going to heaven because uh, uh, he was confident he's keeping these laws perfectly. And um, listen, uh, the laws are pass-fail. And if you ever fail them, you forever fail them. If you ever fail them, you have forever failed them. And therefore can't keep them. And it's going to be true of him, it's going to be true of us, it's all, it's all the way through. Uh, it's the same situation, the previous guy, like I said, the previous parable, the guy that says, you know, how great it will be for all those who will be in the kingdom at the, eat the feast at the table with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. Remember the, kind of the toast that he gave, it was sort of like, hey, you know, I'll drink to that. And Jesus starts a parable from right there. But of course, in, in him saying that, there's an assumption that he's going and so is everybody else there. And Jesus gives a parable we saw last time, that says, maybe you're not. That's the same point he's making here. This is not a parable about social justice or caring for, it's not the main point. Or caring for those we find hurt on the side of the road or taking care of them or feeding them. That's not the main point of this, guys. It's not. It's a self-righteous dude who thinks he's going to heaven but who is not, who Jesus is trying to get to his heart. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a salvation situation. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a witnessing encounter, if you will. Jesus is trying to get him to the first step of the Roman road, which is what? Uh, the wage, wage, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. To say that he's a sinner. Just to say that he's a sinner. To see that he's wrong and he's not kept these laws. And, and um, it doesn't seem to ever work with this guy. It, it's, it's, it's about knowing that you can never do enough to save yourself. That's what this is about. That it's, it's about demonstrating that you're not righteous, and that's exactly what Jesus' point to make here. So this man thought he was passed, he'd passed the tests, and his only question was uh, the definition of his neighbor. And so, so let's back up. I said earlier, I'm gonna ask you a question. If, if I asked you the question, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself, what's your answer? Yes is the wrong answer. Because either you do or you don't. So do you? Then you don't. It's either pass fail. Either you're doing it or you hadn't, or, you're, or you had, it's the same as you never done it. I mean, I, I hear you try to, me too. But you understand these are not try to's, these are commandments. These are absolutes. They're absolutes, pass, fail, heaven or hell. So you've broken the two greatest commandments in the scriptures and you expect to go to heaven? Upon what basis do you expect to go to heaven? God, you stand before God someday and he says, why should I let you into heaven? You say, well, because I've sort of kept your two greatest commandments. It's like down here, and like I said, back to our, our law, our, our legal system here in Cameron County. So you stand before a judge and he says, have you ever killed anybody? Well, I've sort of not killed anybody. <laughs> you sort of have it? Well, I didn't, I shot him, but I didn't mean to kill him, but he bled out and that's not my fault. Okay, sorry. You know, murderers need to be judged. Uh, yeah, like I said, it doesn't work in our system. Why should we ever think it works in God's system but complete righteousness? These are absolutes. No, you have never kept these laws. Hey, you may have come close maybe once, but most of your life, if you're like me, you spend most of your day breaking them. Can we all be honest here? I won't tell God. <laughs> Can we be honest? Now, are we better than most? Yes. Were we as good as God? 
Nope. So fail. You failed, I failed. Just get over it. Or don't, I should say. Don't get over it. Take it very seriously. So, so now we plan to go to heaven having broken the two greatest laws, commandments in the scripture. So there, we need to search for some other solution, don't we? And since our own personal righteousness is not that solution, then we have to search, and since only righteousness can enter heaven, we have to search for some other righteousness. You see, this is the goal that Jesus is trying to produce in this story. He's trying to chop everything out from under this guy of anything he thought was causing his own personal righteousness. And he does it in a very extreme fashion. So, so again, we condemn the priest and the Levite in this story, but, but really, uh, we're no better than they are. I don't know that I'd have done any better than them. I'd have been looking around, had my hand on my pistol, looking around, before I did any, for sure, before I did anything for that guy. And besides, what was he doing out there by himself anyway? I mean, he got himself in the own tr trouble, so you know what? You're going to be that dumb. Again, this is not about we should do better and we should care for those who, uh, who uh, are hard to care for. And again, not to say that God isn't in favor of those things. I'm just saying that's not the point of this. It's just not. It's just not. It's about how do I get this guy, your Jesus' point, to, to realize that he's lost, that he hasn't done what he thinks he's done. How do I get a person who is in, we've dealt with, have you ever dealt with a religious, hard, hardest people to deal with on a salvation message is people that are religious. Because they think they're fine. And they are very hard to talk down. That's why you don't start with a Jesus loves you thing. Because of course they know, they think that he should. Of course he loves me. Look how awesome I am. I do everything that he says. Well, sort of, but does it matter? And my mom was a great lady, don't you know? And my dad was a pastor, for crying out loud. And I'm in if anyone ever is. And don't talk to me about this sinner stuff. There's sinners out there, but I'm not one of them. And, you know, yada, yada. Don't start with the love of Jesus. They think Jesus should love them. You start with the commandments. Have you kept those things? So what happens if you don't keep those things? What does that make you? Sinner. Start from there. Jesus, again, doesn't lay out the Roman road for him, or, but or, or actually he does. He's just trying to get him to the first part, which is, you know, you're, fallen, uh, you're a sinner and you've fallen short of the glory of God, and until you get to that place, you cannot give them a message of, of grace. There's no grace for a person until they, th until they first know they're a sinner. It has to be a message of the law first. The entire point is to convince the man of his sinfulness. So let's, let's back up here because we need to add some, some flavor to this before we can really hammer it home. So, so the Jericho Road. Anybody ever been there? Yeah. You've been to Israel with us. If you've driven, driven down it, probably. I've been down it twice. I've been up it once and I've been down it once. So twice I've gone two different directions. 17 miles. It's just as ugly then as it, to now, today as it is now. Then. 17 miles, a descent of about 4,000 feet. So Jerusalem is roughly 3,000 feet above sea level, and Jericho is about 800 feet below sea level. So your feet are six feet above sea level right now. Jericho is 400 feet below you. And the, and the Dead Sea is another 350 feet below that. So it's down there. The, the Sea of Galilee is 800 feet, 800 feet below sea level. So uh, it's hard to imagine the contrast that they have over there. And it doesn't look like it when you go over there, by the way. Just, you know, you don't know you're doing that until there's a place, there's a place where you're going down the Sea of Galilee and it's, it, you're, I don't know, seemingly a thousand feet above the Sea of Galilee and there's a, there's a road sign that says sea level. So we tell everybody to roll up their windows, you know, when you get there. So 17 miles of descent, 4,000 feet roughly, winding road through canyons with sharp turns and many rocks and ravines, and has and still does hide bad people. It's Palestinian territory today. Um, way, back in the book, way back in the book of Joshua, in the times of Joshua, it was called the passive adumim, which means the blood pass. Bad stuff happened back then, bad stuff happens there now. It's just a tough place. It's a notorious place that featured robbers and bandits, and you never, ever traveled there alone, which brings up a point here of why is this guy traveling alone, which makes, makes me, enable me to say another point. He wasn't. This isn't a real person. This is just a contrived story. It's extremes 
because Jesus is trying to make a point. This didn't ever happen. So when we start questioning, oh, well, the Levite, because he had to keep himself clean, and the priest, because he had certain rituals, and because uh, the, this and that, uh, you're, you're not doing what Jesus wants you to do. This is a surface-level understanding. Don't try to get into whole socials, because these people never existed. So try, trying to psychoanalyze people who never existed is going to make you crazy. Don't do it. Stick to the point. And we have to fight for the point. We really do. So, so uh, much of this can be cut through when we understand this is simply a contrived story that Jesus is trying to make a single point with. So nothing in this story ever happened. It's intentionally contrived. Keep the point of Jesus reaching this man for his salvation in focus at all times. This priest, man who, of course, knows the law, knows the greatest commandment. He's the most respected. He's a person, of course, in their society. If anyone's going to heaven, it's the priest, right? Well, so, let's put him on a pass-fail adventure here. So he comes up to the guy who's been beaten half to death, and he, the word actually in the Greek here is anti. He goes to the farthest other side of the road that he possibly can go. So this guy's on this side, he goes to the anti side of things. So, has he loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, which has resulted in the loving his neighbor as himself? He is not. Pass or fail? Fail. That's what this story is about. Jesus says, here's your best guy. He failed. What's happening to the rest of you? Again, he's getting at their heart. Uh, he was trying to avoid the robbers. He was trying to keep defiled uh, for ceremonial reasons. Again, this guy has never existed. Don't get off into all those questions. They'll distract you, and they'll get you away from the main point. Um, there is no, he had, this man had no reason, no motive, no excuse. It's just simply a straightforward story. Let it be what it is. So we have to fight hard for, for correctly handling this passage. And again, the point is, is this man um, should have had a grasp of these laws, but he gave up eternity right there. And it, pop, it wasn't his first time. Just like it wasn't your first time to, to not have God first in your life today, if that happened to you already. It's gonna. Not your first time. So how many times have you broken the greatest commandment? Probably every day of my life. And you expect to go to heaven? Wow, hope you got yourself a plan. Because the first plan is certainly you failed that one. Levi does the same thing, goes to the anti side of the road. So now we have a priest and we have the second in line as far as those who are expected to go to heaven. The guy does the exact same thing. And again, the point is the same. Uh, entry exam, pass, fail for the Levite and for the, for the priest. Fail. It's pass, fail. Either you pass by perfection or you fail by going to hell. You're not perfect, then you're going to hell, period. Then we have the Samaritan. Here's the shocker. Jesus always throws it in. He's such a, such a perfect storyteller and so good at what he does. A certain Samaritan who was on a journey came to him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. Now, Jesus throws in the shocker, the very existence, listen, of Samaritans was considered to be evil by the Jews. The, the fact that they were alive was considered to be uh, an evil thing. The, the best thing that could happen as far as the Jews are concerned to the Samaritans is that they all died immediately. And by the way, it was reciprocated. Samaritans didn't care a thing about them either. So they were a blight on the world as far as the Jews were concerned, and the Jews were a blight on the world as far as the Samaritans were concerned, and they, if they really wanted to call someone a bad name, they called them Samaritans. Remember where they, they say this to Jesus here? The Jews answered Jesus, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Guys, they're cussing him out. You've got to hear where they're from. That is the worst curse words you could possibly say. And not, not really sure whether it's worse to be demon-possessed or be a Samaritan. They're really the same for them. They're cussing him out. So this man, listen, this Samaritan who did not have the law, was not allowed in the temple, did what the law required from his heart. Not allowed access, not allowed access to sacrifice or worship. The entire Jewish religious system was exposed and broken right there. Jesus exposes them. He completely exposes them. Exposes them. So, so nothing would have surprised them at all about a Levite or a priest passing by on the other side. They would have expected that they do that. And Jesus' point, again, is right back to the first two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. These guys failed. The whole system of their religion 
which the best ones they had were their leaders, failed. And they would have expected it that way, but they had never thought about it as a failure. And a guy who's not religious at all, this Samaritan, seemingly demon-possessed, does exactly what the religion says, and again, a shocker. So the Samaritan man helps him, brings him into the inn, spends the night there taking care of him, um, leaves money for his care the next day. By the way, just to give you an idea of how much money he's leaving, uh, according to uh, Roman records of this day, of Jesus' day, it took one thirty-second of a denarius per day to stay in a typical inn. One thirty-second. How much does he leave? Two. He leaves two. So what he effectively leaves is two months' rent to a person he does not know, and we can assume a person who is of Jewish origin, a person who hates him, and I guess up to that point, whom he also hated. So a person he doesn't know and a person who hates him and he lays down too much rent, and that's not all that he does. He even adds that he, will, he opens up a tab. So, so let's, let's just put this scenario together, and I can't guarantee you this is true, but let's, let's just put this scenario together as, a, as I would suggest to you a strong possibility. So he finds this guy on the road to Jericho. Where does he take him? Somewhere close to an inn, again, those are strong words when Jesus and Mary and Joseph were looking for an inn in Bethlehem. They didn't have a holiday inn or anything like that. They were people with rooms in their house, and they would let out rooms. They would let out the roof. They would let out the barn in the back. The same thing here. You probably have a person who is, has a house somewhere on the road to Jericho. And um, by the way, which brings up the question, so he lives on the road to Jericho. Probably a good guy. Probably a bad guy probably related, so your last name is Italian, and you work in undisclosed manners in Chicago, probably a good guy. Probably, yeah, no offense, I know we got, I got Italians here in the church from Chicago, so I'm always on him about the sawed-off shotgun he owned when he was 10. He really did. We weren't doing nothing bad with the pastor, okay, whatever. Not exactly a duck gun. Uh, so, so, so what, what's his options, though? I mean, you're going to find somebody that's going to let you keep somebody there that's been injured, and you're on the road to Jericho. I mean, you didn't turn and go back to Jerusalem. You went to the closest place you could get. Uh, again, it's an assumption. We can't be dogmatic about it. But most likely, you're, looking at, you're dropping them off at a person who's just a little bit less than, than dependable, I would suggest to you, at the very least. Or maybe the head of the gangs that just killed this guy, tried to kill him. And you pay him two months' rent, and you open a tab at his discretion. Now, can you smell extortion coming here? Can you smell it? So I come back two months later, and I found out that this guy supposedly has drank three kegs of beer and ordered 14 women through his room. <laughs> That's legitimate, though. It's legitimate, right? By the way, I'm going to pay it because I opened a tab in my name. So I want you to understand how crazy this is. This isn't, I'm buying you a couple of nights stay, and I'm paying for a week full of food. This is extravagant. I would suggest to you, no offense, none of you would do this. I know I wouldn't. None of us would do this. He does this for a complete stranger who, up until this point, had hated him and whom he hated. And... I would never expect that any of us here would do that. I would never do this. And so understand, it's not me saying or expecting that any of us would do this, but can Jesus expect us to do this? He can do whatever he wants. And this is, this is the point. So, so let's let the full point of the parable hit us uh, right between the eyes, uh, shall we? This is what Jesus is saying, loving your neighbor as yourself looks like. It's extravagant. Oh, well, it's not very smart. Jesus is not proposing smart things. Who said it was? It's not smart to love your neighbor as yourself, is it? It doesn't make sense financially. It doesn't work good on the books. Because here's, here's, here's what I know. Here's what I know. If that were you, half beaten on the side of the road, would you not pay for yourself to stay for two months? Or, or would you say, unless I'm better in two days, I'm I'm off the payroll. 
Isn't it all your money anyway? And what's that money for? Wouldn't you love yourself that way? Of course you would. But we say anything about, you know, you, Paul got beat up on the side of the road and he had to, he had to stay two months in an inn and, and uh, take care of himself there. Would, would any of us say, Paul, what were you thinking spending $2,000 on yourself? You should have let yourself die and give all your money to your kids, Paul. We love you, but not that much, Paul. Come on, stop, stop being so, would we do that? Of course we wouldn't. It's his money. And that's his health, and that's the situation that he was in. He would, of course, love himself this way, wouldn't he? We wouldn't chide him for that. What does the scripture say? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. You see, this is way past what any of us would even consider. Again, it's not me asking you to do this. I didn't write this. But Jesus can ask that of you. And he can also say at the end, pass, fail. Like it or lump it. I didn't write this. <laughs> Again, understand, you think the point of this story is to make you feel more guilty about buying someone uh, in need groceries. You've missed the point. That's not the point. The point is to corner anyone who thinks they're righteous based upon any laws of God. It's to put you in a tight corner. You can't, you haven't, you won't. It's not naturally in your heart. Don't put yourself in this parable or anyone else and say, well, I know someone who came pretty close to this. Okay, they came close once, but then the rest of the time of their life they didn't. Fail. Perfection. Be perfect as your father is perfect, right? Fail. You failed, I failed, we've all failed. So, so the commandments are not, listen, rules of thumb, and they are not suggestions. They are ultimatums, and they do have a point, and I don't know, I don't know why that's in there, but that's the one I was after. So, so we know, so, so that you're, you're, I hope you have the Ten Commandments on your wall, and Ten Commandments is the basis of, of our culture, but we've interpreted them out of context. We've just, just like this story, we've excised them, and we've interpreted them in a, in a, in a vacuum when they were not in a vacuum. They were very specific. They have a very specific point. The law is not to help you. Actually, it is. It's to help you see that you are without help. It's to render you completely helpless. The point of the law says now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That's all of us. So that every mouth may be closed to shut up any self-righteousness. So that nothing about me, I cannot say I'm a good boy. The law is sent to tell me that I'm not. It's not to make me better. It can't make me better because I'm a sinner. All it does is point out the fact that I'm a sinner. Now we've said this before. Uh, 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 what color are sheep? If I'm telling a kid in a, in a, in a coloring class at a Sunday school to color sheep, what color is he going to color? So the grass is what color? The sky is what color? The tree is brown and green, right? The sun is what color? The sheep are what color? So, so sheep are white, are they? So I have sheep in a green field and then the fresh snow falls a foot deep. What color are the sheep? They are not white. They are not white. Upon the standard that they're judged, yes, according to the, based upon the green, based upon the wood, based upon the sky, based upon the water or whatever, yeah, they're white in comparison. But when they're compared to something that is stark white, they are definitely not white. That's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is not to make you white. First of all, to show to you that you are not and that you can't be made white by yourself. Once you're dirty, you're dirty. Whatever is to shut the mouth, right? That every mouth may be closed, that all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. All Jesus is doing is giving them the law. He's turning their law that they thought they were being saved by by doing them because they interpret them just like we do. They, we like suggestions. I'm better than everybody else, and so somebody has to be in heaven. And so God's going to take the top one-third. I don't know what our philosophies are. He's going to take the top one-third out of society, and the two-thirds are going to go to hell, and the top one-third, I'm in the top one-third. i got nothing to worry about. Well, first of all, nobody needs to be in heaven. Nobody ever was. Past. And it's by the grace of God only and the will of God that any of us are going to ever be there anyhow. 
So, but to say somehow with the, the, with the preposterous notion that my system that I invent are going to allow me to go in there because I've kept them better than anybody else, uh, no, definitely not. So, uh, so, so what is Jesus saying? What are you saying, preacher, that we're all headed to hell? Exactly. You got it. That's all he's trying to say to this man. You think you're going to heaven? You're not. You're going to hell because here's a story of a man who does it better than you. And even though I, he's not even saying this guy's going to heaven, but your best people and your whole religion is turned up on its ear as you would expect it. Expect, you wouldn't expect that they would pull over and help this guy. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. You understand? But in, in, in knowing that they wouldn't, you're automatically saying that they have in the past failed system of going to heaven that they have failed. That's all he's trying to get across to them. That's all. Now, not to say that we can't take this and say, shouldn't we take care of people? Shouldn't I be better? Shouldn't I strive to be better at keeping the, best, the two greatest commandments? I should. But as a Christian, I know that's not what saves me. I'm not adding anything to a salvation that is perfect. Jesus has perfectly kept those laws. You think about, uh, you speak about extravagance. I mean, think about what, what did Jesus do for you? A God-hater, an enemy of his. And hung himself on a cross. I would suggest to you, according to the way we judge things, that was completely foolish. He spent all that on, no offense, on the likes of you. I wouldn't do that. Nor would you for me. But the God that we have is an extravagant God, and his laws are that they are way, way beyond extravagant. They're not two months' rent and an open tab. They're a forever laying himself out, taking completely on us, on upon himself, all of our sins. A complete exchange of his righteousness for, for our wickedness. And while we are the ones that are actually killing him, it's the killing of him that works that salvation on us. Now, that's incredible. That's amazing. That's just beyond. Like I said, all, all the things, all the laws that God have are not just laws that he's set up for us to keep. They're actually who he is by nature. It's who he is. So when we break these laws, we're not just breaking arbitrary laws, a system that God established for us to keep, but not for himself. We're actually going against who he actually is. That's, that's who he is, the creator, the one who created us, who formed the universe, and who holds all things together. That is the way he, his complete nature is that way. We're headed into an eternity in which what's, he, what's heaven going to be like and what's eternity going to be like, it's going to be where the nature of things are exactly according to these laws. Exactly that way. We're na we, no question, we, wouldn't have to, we don't have to rein ourselves in about loving our neighbor or loving God. Don't have to. It's going to be great. It really is. So we'll stop right there. So let's pray, and uh, we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you for teaching us. We thank you, Lord, for your word, and we pray, Lord, that we would hold to it. Uh, we thank you that um, none of us have got it all right. But um, I pray, Lord, whatever we do know that is right, that we would hold to those things, and that when you're ready for something new for us, Lord, we would be open uh, to those things as well. Thank you, Lord, even though we may read your scripture and not fully understand it, that we're still getting good from it uh, because you're changing us and because your spirit's in charge of us and he's the teacher. And so we're trusting him and trusting uh, this word that you've inspired. Thank you, God. Pray your blessings over these people. Keep them safe. Watch over them, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.